Are you coming to join us? SAS Doctors! Are you listening to our SOS? SAS Doctors! Oh yeah! Are you coming to bail out the water? Are you coming to fill in the holes? How many fingers have you got? You must be nuts to climb aboard a sinking ship and the sharks must be circling for you to ignore the statistics and everybody thinks Everybody else's job is better Everybody thinks That life could be a little easier But you might get longer hours Worse pay still working weekends And having less say The grass ain't always green around the other side Welcome you with our arms open wide Glad to have you aboard Strapping for a bumpy ride We'll use your skills Done A&E where you can be duty A bit of psych Just see depression and anxiety You might hope For a little variety But a general practice now lost a little specialties And my friends say The clinic is the worst day Imagine doing clinic every day The grass ain't always green around the other side Grass ain't always greener but Don't worry, we'll still have ya What's gonna happen to the jobs that you've left? We might just see a GP mass exodus The grass ain't always greener on the other side That goes for us too I'm out of time and I've got no more skill So that take is gonna have to do It's Friday, the 31st of March, and this is the Hot Topics Podcast. Welcome to the Hot Topics Podcast from NB Medical. I'm Neil Tucker, and in the podcast today, we are going to spend only a short amount of time on the news I realise that the longer you spend on the news, the more depressed we all get. So we're going to be quick. Then we're going to have a look at the latest research and we've got some really interesting stuff today. We've got a paper in the BMJ, which is all about quaff. It's absolutely fascinating. Then we're going to have a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is directly relevant to almost all of us. And that's about consumption of caffeine and the effects that they may have on our, our acute health. And then we're going to round up with a paper that published in The Lancet today, which is a new treatment for menopause management, pushing the boundaries of medicine. 
As ever, don't forget, you can get in touch. Hottopics at mbmedical.com if you want to email. Find us on Twitter at GPHotTopics. Don't forget to check out the mbmedical.com website. We'll have more live webinars coming up after Easter, including our latest Hot Topics course. We've just done a whole series of courses, so the live ones there are on demand. And also don't forget to check out MB Plus, our subscription service for just over £300 a year. You get access to all of the courses we do live and on demand. And I should just do a shout out for our latest new course, which is coming out in June This is our new to GP course. So if you're just finishing your training or you're new to GP in the last few years, this is a great course for you. There's a bit of clinical stuff in there. There's also, though, lots about the nuts and bolts of general practice and what you need to know that you're getting yourself into, regardless of whatever job you're going to do in general practice. And tips on not just how to survive, but actually make your working life easier as well. It's a half-day course, Thursday, the 15th of June check it out. Now, on to the news. Let's start with the good news. Satisfaction in the NHS falls to the lowest level ever recorded survey shows, according to the BMJ and the BBC and every other media outlet. And why is this good news? Because general practice was not the worst performing of all the areas. Things do seem dire generally. Overall satisfaction in the NHS was 29%. That's 7% worse than last year. 40% lower than it was 12 years ago and the lowest it's ever been in the 40 years that they've been doing this survey. While we weren't the worst, general practice did not come out of this survey particularly well. Only 35% of respondents said they were very or even quite satisfied in the service. Access and long waiting times for appointments being their primary annoyance. But actually, if you exclude dentistry... A&E came out the worst, which was a real surprise to me. How many people actually need to use A&E on an annual basis? How many people can actually be informing the, the results of this survey? The public still do support the principle of the NHS, though. So nine out of 10, back to the idea that it should be free of charge when you need it, and over eight in 10 supported the principles that the NHS should be available to everyone and primarily be funded through taxes. That still means that somewhere over 10% of people think the NHS should not be available to everyone. I can only speculate on how they might decide who isn't entitled to NHS care. Too overweight, unemployed, smoker, you do a high-risk sport hobby, Uh, maybe your name begins with the letter D. Perhaps you don't read the Daily Mail or the Telegraph. On a positive note, 55% said staff shortages were a problem and half of people said the government doesn't spend enough money on the NHS. So perhaps at least half the country understand the main issues. It gets really tiring when we see this constant rhetoric that the NHS is bad and by implication the people that work in it are bad and not trying hard enough. It's so grinding. As one person who was interviewed by the BBC said, the staff were amazing, but they were pushed to their limits. Still, as anyone who's ever had to listen to Gary Lineker snivelling on about helping refugees and stopping children drowning in boats in the sea will know, it is just a mouthpiece for the lefty liberal elite, so don't pay too much attention to them. Meanwhile, the government are trying to make things better, and if you have the pleasure of living in England and working in general practice, 
Good news, your PCN could be getting up to £11,500 uh, per month on average to improve access. That would be enough to maybe pay for one salary GP for a year. That would be quite welcome. Not sure it's going to save the access problem. And there are a few issues like there being no extra GPs. In fact, I see in another news story that compared with this time last February, there are 500 less full-time equivalent fully qualified GPs. So good luck getting one of those. Good luck convincing any of your current staff to work even more. Good luck getting some other allied health professionals. We've nabbed most of those already. Maybe we will be reprieved by SAS doctors being allowed to work in general practice. It's not a perfect solution. GPs have spent years making themselves specialists in general practice. Just because you can do a hospital specialty does not mean that you can automatically work in general practice. It is not the easy option. However, I think also to be dismissive of it is a very bad idea. We definitely do need the help and I think this group could be very, very useful. However, is there some kind of magic doctor tree out there with SAS doctors on? Is there currently a whole um, massive group of them just sitting around doing nothing? I'm pretty sure that's not the case. So we're just going to strip out more staff from the hospitals. And then what are the hospitals going to do? Will they want to come anyway? You can lead a horse to water. You cannot make them drink, especially when that water is full of slurry. I was trying to find out if the 2023-24 contract had now been published by NHS England. According to Pulse yesterday, they'd um, had updated about the PCN stuff, but they hadn't actually done the proper full contract. Uh, that's meant to be starting on April the 1st. Don't publish it then, guys. People might think it's a joke. But I felt I have to share this, and I'll try and remember to put the link in the podcast description but if you do want to give yourself a little bit of a chuckle and make yourself understand a little bit better where a lot of your taxes do go when it's funding the NHS, then you could do worse than going on the NHS England website. And under it, there is a section on general practice. And the title is General Practice, The Best Place to Work. It starts off with the sentence, there's never been a better time to choose, choose a career as a GP. I guess those of you still waiting for the contract tomorrow may beg to differ, but honestly, I think you should quit your moaning. Someone's written this down on a website, so it must be true. Now I can feel myself going down some gaping sarcasm hole here, so I think I need to pull myself out of it and let's concentrate on the research. And we're going to start with a paper in the BMJ, which could not be more topical, as there's all this as there's all this discussion around contracts, especially in England at the moment. And a lot of people I know would really, really love to see Quaff be disbanded, so that we could just focus on our patients and not on bureaucracy and box ticking, then this paper is very timely. It is entitled The Estimated Impact from the Withdrawal of Primary Care Financial Incentives on Selected Indicators of Quality of Care in Scotland. Now, a few months ago, I made a slightly offhand comment saying that I thought it might be a mistake to get rid of quaff. I actually forget the context, but I did have someone contact me saying, don't you know that Quaff has been shown to make no difference whatsoever to any outcomes? If that person is listening, thank you for getting in touch. I really do appreciate it when people get in touch, even if it's to challenge some of the ideas that I might be talking about. 
This took me down a rabbit hole looking at the evidence around whether quaff works or not. And probably the most important paper is one actually published by NHS England itself in 2018 on quaff. And that shows, to cut a long story short, and a direct quote from the paper, the evidence suggests that the impact of quaff upon health outcomes has been modest at best. Remember, modest in kind of medical or scientific terms means rubbish. And uh, the other quote is, there is also little evidence to suggest that quaff has had any impact on patient mortality. Now, I think that mortality is in many cases, an overrated metric. I really think we should be spending more time focusing on quality of life. And it does also say that there is some evidence to suggest that improvements in long-term condition management as a result of quaff are associated with a decrease in emergency admissions when compared to conditions which are not incentivized. So that's more promising. But the bottom line is, even the people that run quaff think it sucks. Should we then just be getting rid of quaff? Well, of course, they did that in Scotland a few years ago, and that's now providing the perfect data for us to be able to understand a little bit more about the pros and cons of this approach. The objective of this study was to determine whether the withdrawal of the Quality and Outcomes Framework Scheme in Primary Care in Scotland in 2016 had an impact on selected recorded quality of care compared with England, where the scheme continues. And they looked at almost a thousand different practices in Scotland and almost 8,000 practices in England, comparing 2013 and 14 to 2018 and 19. And the main outcome measure was changes in quality of care at one year and three years after withdrawal of Quaff from Scotland. We'll come back to the idea about what constitutes quality of care. But in this situation, they class it as um, how well practices did at meeting 16 indicators from the Quaff list. The results showed a significant decrease in performance in those Scottish practices. At one year post-abolition, 12 out of the 16 care indicators were worse And by three years, 10 out of 16 were worse. The biggest drop by far of 40 percentage points was in mental health care planning. Let's ask ourselves the question then, is this important? Do I believe that Scottish GPs are not providing any kind of mental health care? Absolutely not. Of course they are. Does it mean they're just not box ticking on mental health care planning? a piece of bureaucracy that I suspect most of us don't consider that important, well, realistically so. Having said that, there were declines in other areas which do seem important, things like diabetic foot screening, blood pressure control in people who are at high risk, so they've got conditions like peripheral arterial disease, previous stroke or TIA, um, hypertension, diabetes, coronary artery disease, and less good control in people's HbA1c. But does it really matter? And this still leaves me scratching my head, this apparent disconnect between the research. On the one hand, we've got data that shows that quaff doesn't seem to have made any um, benefit in people's mortality. On the other hand, we've got lots of research that shows if you reduce people's blood pressure, if you get their cholesterol down, if you control their diabetes really well, then you should see improvements in mortality. So what's going wrong? Well, as the editorial points out, interpreting these new findings is complex. 
One of the issues is we don't really know how the initial improvements that we saw in quaff compared with pre-quaff in things like blood pressure, diabetes management and the like was simply down to better recording rather than true quality improvement. It may also be the converse that we're seeing in Scotland now, not really reflecting a change in quality of care. The editorial also points out that some of the good work, in inverted commas, that went into Quaff may simply be bias. So let's take blood pressure as a good example of this. How many times would you and I have maybe discounted a slightly raised blood pressure because the patient had a cold or something like that? Something that may have explained why it was a little bit up, even if that's probably not physiologically accurate. Regardless, we've decided to not code that event. Or perhaps they were quite close to their target. So we've done the blood pressure a few more times until we finally got a result that was below it and just written that one down. As the as the editorial points out, it may be that some of the decline is simply a removal of this bias. So all we can really say from this BMJ paper is that it confirms that withdrawal of performance targets is associated with a reduction in documented performance. How many times have we talked about surrogate markers on the Hot Topics course on this podcast and the limitations of using surrogate markers? So what we really want is hard endpoints. I guess the really interesting study would be to look at the mortality rates in Scotland before and after the abolition of Quaff and compare them over the same time period to what's happened in England is there any difference? Perhaps then we can answer the question, should we all be getting rid of quaff? Okay, time for something a little bit less heavy and something that's a bit more personal to many of you, I suspect. How many of you have a cup of coffee in the morning? How many coffees does it take you to get through a day in general practice? Have you ever thought to yourself, am I drinking too much? Have you ever recommended to a patient they cut down on their coffee because it may be detrimental to their health. If so, this paper in the New England Journal of Medicine may be of interest to you. This is the acute effects of coffee consumption on health among ambulatory adults. As its authors say, coffee is one of the most commonly consumed beverages in the world, but the acute health effects of coffee consumption remain uncertain. Well, in a trial N equals 1, of myself, I can tell you that coffee is bad for me. Regular listeners will know that a few years ago, I completely gave up caffeine, still have given up caffeine, because I had a few runs of atrial fibrillation that seemed intrinsically linked to caffeine consumption. Uh, Most frequently, when maybe I've had a bit of booze the night before, and then tea or coffee in the morning and then I'd flip into AF and I'd be in AF for the next two or three days. I went to see a cardiologist. They said, oh, if I had to give up booze, I'd rather have an ablation. Well, I definitely didn't want an ablation. I didn't really want to give up alcohol, but I did give up caffeine and I've been fine ever since. Now looking back, I can see that caffeine has a very profound effect on me. So it doesn't really actually act as much of a stimulant for me, but it makes my head spin. It makes me feel sick and it's clearly doing something bad in my atria as well. And I feel like this is a familiar story. I feel like lots of people have 
atrial fibrillation that may be linked to caffeine consumption and that quite a lot of people seem to improve quite a lot when they give up caffeine. So I was very surprised by the results of this study because the authors seem to conclude that caffeine is completely fine. Crack on with your Starbucks. No, this uh, study was not sponsored by the producers or sellers of coffee. It was a randomized trial of 100 adults who were fitted with a continuously recording ECG device. This looked for cardiac ectopy and arrhythmias. And then they also measured daily step count, sleep minutes and serum glucose via a wrist-worn accelerometer and a continuous glucose monitor. They then sent out text messages to the participants over the next 14 days, randomly instructing them to either consume caffeine or to avoid caffeine. So in this group of around 40-something-year-olds, they found no difference in the rate of daily premature atrial contractions. They did find a difference in premature ventricular contractions. That was 50% higher in the caffeine group. Hard to know if that actually makes any real-world difference. Probably not. Slightly better sleep if you don't drink caffeine. Your sugar levels are just the same. Things then look pretty good for this group of 100 coffee drinkers. Why this discrepancy then between maybe my own personal experience and what I'm sure has been the experience of many of my patients? Maybe the study just isn't big enough. Maybe it's looking at slightly different metrics. I don't know. But what I do know is if I have a patient who comes in with AF or any other arrhythmia, I'm still going to ask them about how much caffeine they're consuming. The last piece of research is a window into the future of menopause management. Hugely topical, of course, at the moment. The mainstay of treatment remains HRT. We know that's very effective. We know the risks are very low. We also know that hormonal options are not good for some people. Think those with a history of breast cancer, for example. Some women would prefer to just not have hormones, which is fair enough. And there are non-hormonal options. Could be non-medical uh, or rather non-pharmacological such as CBT or it could be something like SSRIs. But we know that they are not as good as HRT. Well, it might not be long before we have a new class of medication, the neurokinin 3 receptor antagonist, a non-hormonal therapy for the treatment of vasomotor symptoms in menopausal women. These may not provide some of the other benefits that HRT does think improvements in cardiovascular disease, in osteoporosis, in overall mortality even, but they might be able to help control the most troubling and common symptom, hot flushes. So what do these medications do? I had to do a bit of a deep dive into this one, I'll be honest, and it still goes beyond my level of comprehension. I'm always staggered by the science behind these new medications and the types of things that the scientists can actually look at. You'll see what I mean. So hot flushes are linked to activity of KNDY neurons. So these co-express three neurotransmitters, Kispeptin, neurokinin B, and dynorphin. This was recently discussed in an editorial in Menopause Journal. So these neurons are linked with the regulation, probably the most important part of regulation, the hypothalamic gonadotrophin-releasing hormone axis. They're also 
uh, important in a range of other functions, things like prolactin production, puberty, thermoregulation, stress and other stuff too, I'm sure. Estrogen has this inhibitory effect on these neurons, so you will lose a lot of that postmenopausally. And also those neurons become hypertrophied after the menopause as well, compounding the issue. One of those three neurotransmitters, neurokinin B, is linked with temperature control, temperature homeostasis. And so when you then remove that estrogen inhibition, things start going crazy. That's when you start getting hot flushes. The idea about these medications then is if you can antagonize that neurokinin neurotransmitter, then hopefully that will lead to an improvement in those hot flushes. So this Lancet paper that published today looks at phezolinitant, 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 you answers on a postcard, for the treatment of moderate to severe vasomotor symptoms associated with menopause, the catchly named Skylight 1 trial. This is a phase 3 placebo-controlled randomized control trial, and they recruited 2,200 women and then randomized them to either have placebo or the drug at 30 milligrams or the drug at 45 milligrams. And they ended up with 175 in each of those groups. I don't know what happened to the other 1,500, but they gave each group the treatment for 12 weeks. And then the active groups had a 40-week extension at the end. Women were aged 40 to 65 with an average of seven or more moderate to severe hot flushes per day. And they measured the mean change in frequency and severity of vasomotor symptoms at week four and week 12. The results showed that both doses of the active medication were better than placebo at meeting those two primary endpoints. So they reduced vasomotor symptoms, frequency and severity. Because of the way they've reported it, it's a bit hard to know quite how that would reflect on a real person in the real world. But they do note that the difference in change is at least meeting their minimum requirements and going beyond that, implying there should be a clinically important difference here. It appears to be a safe and well-tolerated medication and they conclude these data support the use of phezolinotent as a non-hormonal treatment for vasomotor symptoms associated with menopause. This is the second of this type of medication to have a positive finding. So the other is Erlinzanatant or something like that. In a few years time, we'll all be reeling this off like we've been using them for our entire lives. So these medications will be coming our way in the next few years. The big question, of course, is are they any better at controlling vasomotor symptoms than HRT? Are there any longer term safety issues? Will they remain just a purely niche medication for a small subset who really can't take HRT? Right, that's it. Thanks for joining us. We'll have more interviews on the way soon. Don't forget to check out the mbmedical.com website. Please do get in touch if you fancy sending us an email and look after yourselves. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.